So I thought I'd just um, just give a, a simple kind of introductory talk about what the heck we're doing here, in my opinion. Um, one of the uh, most uh, expansive but simple definitions of meditation that I've heard recently from Sada Utejaniya, he describes meditation as experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. Very simple, all-inclusive. And the key point that I really want to talk about tonight, experiencing the mind and body directly with the right understanding. So in a way, not in a way, very important way, you could say the beginning, the most important aspect, not just as we begin our retreat, but as we uh, continue whatever phase you're in, in our life of awakening, our life of awareness, is that we bring to our meditation the particular structure to the whole day, uh, that we begin with right view, with right understanding. Really the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path. And you might say, right, if I had right view and right understanding, I wouldn't need to be following the Eightfold Noble Path and sitting here and meditating. But as with everything, there's degrees. So in a very simple, simple but again comprehensive and profound at the same time way, to talk about right understanding in terms of beginning a retreat in terms of where we are in our practice is a sense of having uh, some understanding of why you're doing this. Really deeply, why mindfulness? Why uh, an intensive meditation retreat? But even that's too narrow. Why uh, do we need to experience the mind and body directly, with or without right understanding. I mean, what's the point? And this is, of course, a, a question that just doesn't have one philosophic answer, uh, something that we can read and study and say, okay, I know this is why, because that doesn't cut it. So I'd say the simple answer, of course, is that the, the right view the reason for our practice for the meditation, as we're going to talk about what we're doing here, is the cultivation of wisdom. Wisdom, again, a buzzword that could mean a lot of things. As I'm meaning it here, the wisdom that the Buddha, as I can understand it, is pointing us towards, the wisdom that develops through our wholehearted commitment to moment-to-moment awareness, to whatever's happening right now. The commitments to the awareness, not to what's happening. And that's the biggest shift. So the, the, the true, the wisdom isn't about coming to a particular insight. Oh, now I've got a not to insight. I can chalk it up. I can go write it in my books. And now when I leave, I'll be a better person. I mean, that might all happen. That would be cool. Nothing wrong with that. 
it's how we think, you know. We tend to come, okay, I shouldn't speak for anyone else, but seeing in my mind and talking to people, the way we know to do things is to do something for a result, a very wholesome result. But with that in mind, it can often be the case that James today, yeah, James, kept saying, you know, mindfulness isn't about being grim, right? That sense that we can get so mm, focused on trying to be mindful correctly, being more mindful, being mindful of every moment, but it becomes an activity that I am doing to achieve a specific result, if you get a sense of this, and it's just another activity in samsara. Now I'm doing mindfulness. And if I do it right, I'll get whatever your particular story is, but you'll get something, because we sure wouldn't do anything if we weren't going to get something for it, right? Okay, this isn't the wisdom of the Buddha, but this is all we know. If, 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 if we said nothing good's going to happen, Everything's going to keep on going just like it is. The world's going to keep on spinning. You'll be happy, you'll be sad, you'll suffer, you won't. Everything will change. You're really not going to get any better than you are right now. And you've got to really put out effort to be present for every moment. Would you come? <laughs> Probably not. At least not in the beginning. So the wisdom, the wisdom that arises through this this willingness to relax into mindful presence with whatever's happening without resistance to this particular moment, without fixation holding on, now I've got it, let's hold on to it, without getting lost in the story of what this particular experience means about me, whatever it is. It's just this. The wisdom that arises from that It's different from what we might expect. It's simply the uh, potential, the possibility of recognizing reality just as it is. You think, big whoop, you know, I signed up for that. Well, you know what? That is a big whoop. Because in terms of the way the Buddha describes what's going on in our mind, how we suffer, why we suffer, and we'll talk, of course, about that the whole month. It's not because that what's happening is bad. It's not because we're messed up. Okay, maybe it's a little. No, no, it's not because <laughs> we're messed up. It's <laughs> so like, why are we messed up? Because we don't recognize what's really going on. And so we keep on, we bring this, these misconceptions to our meditation practice and turn it into another endeavor to try to make me different and better. And when that doesn't really meet our expectations, we're lost. What, what, what do we do now? But the wisdom of the Buddha is so radical because it completely undercuts this view. This is what you call wrong view. And the right view, the simply the right view of just starting our practice, is the right view of the willingness and the trust that through uh, moment-to-moment mindful awareness, 
cultivating, recognizing moment when the heart and mind is fully present without being distorted by greed, wanting something to be different, aversion, hatred, fear. That can be there, it can be recognized, and it's simply another arising experience when we don't recognize greed, fear, and me, 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 me. Then it completely distorts our perception. We recognize inaccurately. We respond to the situation to the best of our ability, but since we're recognizing it wrongly, our response, which is usually trying to make ourselves happy, just doesn't work. And we don't know why. That, uh, you've all practiced a lot. You know what I'm talking about, I hope. You have some sense of what I'm talking about. Now, the, 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 what the Buddha is pointing us to is so radical because he's not saying you have to change everything. It's stop trying to change everything and really, really, 100% land here in this moment and just let it be as it is with full commitment and presence. And the moment-to-moment clarity, purity of heart and mind that's present is the condition, and we call that mindfulness, it's the condition that allows for accurate recognition. And that clear recognition of things as they are cuts through our confusion, our distorted responses, and the... uh, the way we act in life that keeps our suffering going. There's a, a phrase in the Pali, yata bhutanyana dasana, which means knowledge and vision of things as they are. It's one of the highest understandings. So why we practice in a wise view to begin with is just to have the sense it's not about ultimately somehow changing myself or being a better person. I mean, that's all great. That stuff happens. It's not about that, though. It's not to get something. But it's to have this sense, this willingness, this trust, just this trust to be so present and awake with just things as they are that the clear seeing changes our whole understanding of ourselves, of one another, of life, of what we really are. It's It's radical completely cuts through and we can't, we can, we can hear it. The Buddha talks about three levels of panya, of wisdom. And I find this very helpful because they're all aspects of wisdom, but only the third level is truly transformative of how we live in the world. So the first level of wisdom is, is what you would call um, heard or borrowed. Wisdom. It's when we hear stuff. I'm sitting here blabbing to you, and if it's something you never heard, you're hearing it. Whether it's wisdom or not, that's another story. But it's when we hear things or read things, uh, learn about things, and we go, hmm, okay, it's going in. And that's often the kind of wisdom that I learned in school. I could memorize it, I could say it back, I could say I know it. And that's a level, but it doesn't change us. It doesn't change how we live in this world or understand the world. The second kind of intermediate level is, um, I could say it's um, our intellectual understanding. It's like we, we, we contemplate this herd wisdom, what we've read, what we've learned. You know, we kind of take it to heart, we think about it, and go, you know, yeah, that makes sense. 
So talking about impermanence, for example, as we often do, as you're all very familiar, and it's one of the, the deep insights that where we can all say, yeah, I've heard about impermanence. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I don't argue about impermanence, right? Probably no one here is going to really argue that impermanence, I hope, <laughs> that impermanence really seems to be true, right? It's not rocket science. And yet, and yet, does anybody here ever find their, their mind and heart still clinging to something you know is going to change? You ever find yourself clinging to something that's been gone? It's already gone. Maybe it's gone a second, maybe it's gone ten years. Maybe it never even existed in the first place, except as a thought. Okay, so that intermediate level of real, real cogitation, yeah, that makes total sense. But it doesn't quite transform our understanding. And then the third level is really bhavana. It's called bhavana mayapanya, the third level, which is really insight, intuitive wisdom. It's when you have one of those aha moments, you know, and I'm sure you've all had, you can have it in daily life if you're doing sudoku and suddenly you go, oh, that's the number that goes there. You know, it just popped up from somewhere. Ah, and you just know it. So the same with uh, our dhamma wisdom. So with impermanence, there'll be a moment where, Wow, yeah, it's all really changing. A moment. It doesn't last forever either, but you get a sense of the different levels. And so the panya that is cultivated through our trust and steady awareness, the one that really changes how we live is this third level. And so mindfulness, and in the form even of sitting and walking practice, It's not an end in itself. It's not about getting the technique, because you'll hear there's all different techniques, and that can be really confusing, because if you think it's about getting the technique right and becoming more and more perfect, and then we keep saying, well, you could be with the breath, or you could be with hearing, or if it's better for you, be with the body. You know, just tell me what to do so I can do it right. This is just driving me crazy, you know, because we just know how to get it right. It's not an end in itself. It's a supportive condition to relax into full presence and awareness of this moment's experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental experience, thinking, emotions, whatever. And this is the radical thing. It doesn't matter what mindfulness is aware of. Because it's not about the what. It's about learning to recognize and trust like over and over and over the mindful awareness. Whether you're sitting, whether you're walking, whether you're peeing, whether you're eating, whether you're trying to space out, whether you're just waking up from three hours of spacing out, it doesn't matter what. And you'll find it's even sort of possible to be aware while you're spacing out. But then it's not really spacing out anymore, is it? So yeah, I'm just doodling around now. It's, just, it's about that, not about getting it right. And this is, as you can see, is quite broad. It's, about, it's not about a meditation retreat or a form or sitting and walking enough hours so then the rest of the time you can, you know, you put in your hours and, you know, the rest of the time is free. It's not about this incredible effort to get somewhere. It's about, it's our whole life. Meditation, real meditation, that practice of awakening, 
The process of awakening isn't limited to some form. This form, obviously, we think is tremendously helpful and supportive because we get so lost in what's happening in our daily lives, and there's so much happening that we get easily distracted that we forget to notice that there can be awareness of what's happening. Have you noticed that today? You know the difference between knowing what's happening and recognizing that you're aware of what's happening? Okay, right now, are you seeing me? Yes, no, yes, yeah. Okay, were you aware that seeing was occurring before I asked you that? Yes, no. (laughs) Did you get a sense of the difference now if I say, are you aware that seeing is happening? Yes, no. (laughs) Did you get a sense of the difference there? Seeing, if your eyes were open, some of you had your eyes closed. If your eyes were open, you were seeing. You notice how until I mentioned it, we don't tend to be aware of the process. Now, did it take a lot of energy and effort to be aware that you were seeing? Yes, no. (laughs) This is a test. Are you guys awake? No. No, it doesn't. It just takes remembering, right? That's what our practice is. Remembering, it gets more and more interesting. The process of seeing is actually the awareness of the process is what we're cultivating. Seeing. I mean, how many sights do we see in a day? Some are beautiful, some are ugly, most of them are neutral, we're not even aware what's going on. We wait till there's something really good to see, like the Super Bowl. Then we're really into seeing. (laughs) Big whoop, then that's over. Then there's something else to see, like a tennis match. Now that's really good to see. (laughs) But then it's over. Then there's a sunset, and then there's something beautiful, and then there's something ugly, and most of the time there's nothing. And we think it's all about seeing something better. Get a better object. Same with how we feel inside. Same with our moods. Same with our emotions. This is the wheel of samsara. We forget. We're so sucked into what's happening, we forget that the process of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, that the awareness of the process is our practice. I read this uh, from, from Bhikkhu Analayo in his book of a few years ago about the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. But this is a, a, actually a footnote. And I think my notes were a little scribbled, but it looks like it's a footnote where he's quoting Jack Engler, who's a a well-known psychologist and meditator, friend of ours. So he said, anyway, he's theorizing one of the reasons that he thinks Western meditators may progress more slowly is the tendency to become absorbed in the content of awareness rather than continuing to attend to the process of awareness. So that's really, that's really what we're cultivating with our moment-to-moment mindfulness, sitting, walking, eating, whatever, to, to keep remembering to notice the process of awareness. It's not stressful or difficult. It doesn't require huge energy. It doesn't have to be exhausting. But remembering it, we just get so sucked into 
what's happening and our habits of what does it mean about me. It's just the habits of our mind are so strong. That's nothing to criticize. This is just yata bhuta, seeing things as they are. It's not personal. But without having a little sense of right view of why we're practicing, then we can, with our greatest commitment and sincerity and effort, really do meditation practice for years and end up feeling uh, dissatisfied, a failure, or it's useless because we're doing it from the wrong understanding. just want to read a little bit from an article Guy pointed out to me in the New York Times yesterday from somebody who was writing an op-ed piece. An op- uh, anyway, somebody, I won't say his name, but he had been, he's talking about mindfulness and meditation. And he said he's a 25-year mindfulness meditator. He didn't say Vipassana, but that, that's clearly what he's been doing. And clearly very uh, uh, dissatisfied let down. So let's read a couple of things. Because this is like the trap we can so easily fall into. It's kind of heartbreaking to me. So he's saying people talk so these days about the promise of mindfulness. That mindfulness meditation will reduce your blood pressure, reduce your social anxiety and depression, improve your relationships, including your relationship with yourself. Meditation in the right doses, he's saying, is also valuable as a means to relax the body, to quiet the emotions, to refresh one's energy. There's growing evidence that meditation has health benefits. Now, you've all heard all of this, right? I imagine. people, And not to say it's not true. And not to say what's good or bad, but I say, if that's why one is meditating, and it might be, then either you get that and good, okay, done, done, you know, it's over. Or you don't get it and you're really, you know, got to find another way. Maybe yoga, nothing wrong with yoga, or take a pill or whatever. It's limited. So he's going on to say, what I haven't seen is much evidence that meditating leads people to behave better, improves their relationships, or makes them happier. In the modern world, meditation is far more effective as a technique for self-management than as a means of personal transformation, much less enlightenment. This is a guy who's been doing this mindfulness... I don't know what he's actually been doing, but it sounds like mindfulness meditation for 25 years. Very sincerely. And uh, that may be some of your experiences. I'm not here to say what anyone's experience should be, But I can speak for myself, and I know not only for myself, that what makes me so sad about that is clearly bringing such a a lack, a really wrong view to the whole reason for doing it. And when that goal comes from really misunderstanding, then the way that we go about it is coming from our inherent misunderstanding. And it's just another thing we're doing. And it's so sad. And as he goes on, he's saying, you know, he's clearly seeing meditation as a very specific, limited activity, as distinct from mindfulness in life. So that point I would really like 
to get across. Hopefully, I'm hoping you all know that. The specific form of meditation that we're doing here, whatever you're doing internally, but the sitting, the walking, the being silent, in this moment, the structure isn't with the rest of your daily life. But what we're cultivating, this recognizing the process of awareness, is not in any way limited to a meditation retreat or to depths of deep samadhi concentration focus. It's about recognizing awareness, whatever's happening, subtle, gross, busy, thinking, no thought, lots of energy, no energy, you're sick as a dog, you're feeling great. It does not matter. As long as we're conscious, awareness is available and accessible. The the structure of the retreat is simply to give us a really supportive conditions to help us keep remembering and recognizing because the habits to do otherwise are just so strong. Why? I don't know. We won't even go there. One of the things that make you crazy, according to the Buddha, the workings of karma and the beginnings of things. So don't go there. How are things now? Yata, Buddha, things as they have come to be in this moment. What I, one of the, really what I think drew me to the Buddhist teachings, I mean, I was practicing before I understood it was the Buddhist teachings, but when I started reading a lot about it, is that he's so, the teachings are so pragmatic, so practical, that really what, what got him, uh, at least according to the mythology and according to the, the texts, what really got him doing his own inquiry and got him to awaken and then to try to share what he saw with others was really grappling with the basic dilemma of, of life and death and why do we suffer? And why is it that in only wanting to be happy we continue to make choices that keep us spinning and suffering. Okay, he saw that after he awoke. That's what motivated him out of compassion to teach. But what got him to look for himself was just this, we all want to be happy, we don't want to die, we don't want to be sick, everyone gets sick, everyone dies, everything we love goes away, we have to be with things we don't want. And that is how it is. So far, there doesn't seem to be another way. And if you'd found one, I bet you wouldn't be here. Um, so he's really grappling. And he's not just saying, and when he woke up, and this is also what I love, when he woke up, as whoever was taught, I can't ever remember who said what, Bodhi, awakened one, the peaceful one. Was that, what you, was that you last night, James? He doesn't even know. None of us know who said what. But anyway, when the Buddha awakened, the peaceful one, he wasn't living on a cloud in some other realm, in some other world. He's still living in a body with kinspeople who got into fights over water and killed each other and, you know, people coming in and just being totally obnoxious to him all the time and the monks getting in arguments and the nuns getting in arguments and the lay people always trying to prove stuff. And Can you imagine if all the 
people wandering around practicing were coming up to you and wanting to engage you in debate every day and prove you were wrong. I mean, what a nightmare. And he didn't live in another world, yet his heart was free. So it always got me looking, what's the difference? What's the freedom of the Buddha? And looking then, because it sneaks up in the background, the wrong view in my mind, why am I on this path? And if I'm really honest, I'll look, well, maybe then I won't have to have a bad back anymore. <laughs> maybe my personality will get a little bit more friendly, you know, finally. Or maybe you just kind of see those things back there. It's great to see them. When we don't see those ideas, that's what's running us. When we see it, we go, oh yeah, there it is again, wanting, wanting. If I do it, I'll get better. But awareness trumps wanting. Ah, awareness of wanting. Wanting is like this. You're back in awareness. There's no experience we can have that blocks awareness when we remember it. You don't have to stop thinking to re-recognize awareness. You don't have to only have a particular sensation or feel your breath or only have subtle emotions. You can be really angry, a little bit out of control, hopefully not here, but you can even be aware of that. So don't put some particular way awareness should look onto it, but learning how to keep re-recognizing and keep trusting it. And so this... Uh, another thing I found very inspiring an example of this waking up and still in the same world from and that, uh, many of you have probably read this you know Mingyur Rinpoche you know who Mingyur Rinpoche is yes no no not okay uh, he's a, a Tibetan uh, Lama the brother uh, younger brother of Sony Rinpoche so he's very well-known, very renowned. And about two years ago, was it two years ago or so, he you know, has a big scene. He, he, he got his teachings organized, and he said, I'm going off on a three-year retreat. And so he went on a retreat, but he didn't just go you know, to the forest refuge where it's really nice and cozy and go on a three-year retreat. And he has many people who love him and are very connected to him. So he went, and when he knew people would want to support him, he kind of snuck out of his hotel in the middle of the night, as they said, as his brother Sogni said on the website, he didn't even take a toothbrush. He didn't even take any money. He just snuck out and went off like, you know, like you read about in the old days, off to just roam and practice. And so no one's known where he was for two years. And now just recently, um, he sent a letter out. He'd, He'd run into one of his supporters who had begged him after two years, would you let me be with you? And so they were together and then he sent out this letter. And I just found it so inspiring because this is like present day. This is why I teach because of this possibility of undercutting our understanding of what really brings happiness. So I'll just read, read part of this, but it's online if you want to read it. At the end of your retreat. I myself am wandering without any fixed location, staying, staying in isolated mountain hermitages and other such places. I have experienced feelings of happiness and suffering, rising and falling like waves on the surface of the ocean. At times, food and clothing have been hard to come by, 
and I have felt cold, hungry, and thirsty. Even when I have begged for alms, I received nothing but insults and harsh words. At other times, I have received food and clothing effortlessly, without even asking for them. And in my mind, it felt as though I were enjoying the pleasures of the gods. While I have experienced both happiness and suffering, the most important thing is that a deep and heartfelt sense of certainty has arisen in the depths of my being, such that no matter what happens, I know that the true nature of these experiences, their very essence, is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion. So he says, this natural clarity of awareness has been with us from the very beginning. It is the very essence and true nature of our minds. Therefore, and this is the koan that we're all faced with, one must maintain the flow of pure awareness to the best of one's ability without meditating yet not getting lost in distraction. So that encapsulates the whole thing. I just found it so inspiring because this is somebody writing a couple of months ago. And not meditating, I would say, in terms of what we're doing here, not thinking of meditation as that guy writing in the New York Times as a separate specific activity done from me getting somewhere that is somehow separate from the rest of my life. It's all meditation without getting lost in distraction. In other words, not doing as Jack Engler said, getting so lost in what every experience means about me and how it can fulfill me and make me feel better or worse that we lose sight of the simplicity of awareness, knowing that you're seeing right now, knowing that you're feeling. If you're feeling sleepy, knowing you're sleepy. Awareness of sleepiness. Any object, any experience points us back to awareness. That's what non-distractedness means. It doesn't mean clamping down, shutting out all thoughts, only focusing on one thing, That can be useful in terms of cultivating shamatha, cultivating a real steadiness of mind, but that's not what he means here by non-distractedness. And it's not what I'm meaning by uh, awareness that we can recognize connected with any object. Non-distractedness means just recognizing awareness. And when we are just in moments, you experience that flow of awareness of non-distractedness, there's nothing that can happen. That's a distraction. So that loud noise, that person running up and down the steps above your room last night, hopefully that didn't happen, but that's hearing. It's awareness of hearing. That aversion that's arising in your mind and that blame and all the pictures of that person and the notes you're going to write and how can they be here and how da 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 that's aversion. feels like this. Awareness of aversion. Big whoop, I don't want to be aware of aversion. I want to be aware of bliss. That's why I came. Okay, wanting, wanting, feels like this. Okay, it sounds, I know, a little silly. Try it. Keep trying it. You'll find you come into an interview and say, so and so and so is happening. Oh, really? Great. It's like this. It comes to be such a refuge, 
such a relief, such a source of happiness, even though the practice isn't about making us happy. Happiness arises when the mind lets go of clinging to wanting it otherwise, when it lets go of aversion and pushing away. Oh, right, I'm furious with that jerk running up and down the stairs. Anger feels like this. I mean, do this a lot. I'm like, oh, yeah, awareness of anger. It's, after a while, you don't even have to say that. But it's that, it's like a Tai Chi move from being lost and absorbed in the experience of anger and what it means about me and justifying or blaming or blaming yourself and the whole nine yards to, oh, anger and blame feels like this. You don't have to do anything about it. But recognize the awareness over and over that comes to be such a refuge. And that space of recognizing just what's happening is what allows for yata bhuta jnana dasana, clear recognition of things as they have come to be in this moment. So what changed in the Buddha's awakening, living in this world? What changed for Mingyur Rinpoche? As he described it, the deep certainty, the deep certainty in his heart, in his mind. That's that third level of panya, this third level of panya, the deep certainty that no matter what happens, I know the true nature of experience is timeless awareness and vast compassion. That deep certainty, and we have moments of it and we lose it, but notice in those moments, of just, just the simplicity of being with awareness, how our heart and mind then responds to experience from that place is very different. And what changes, what frees our heart and mind, isn't that all the situation around us gets better, that's out of our control. It's not that we get a better personality, it's that we're no longer caught, even just for a moment, in reacting and responding to life from these habits of aversion, pushing away, of greed holding on, and of telling the story of me, of having every experience needing to fulfill in some way me, or else makes me suffer and we must get rid of it. That's what you call samsara. Dingo Kensi Rinpoche as uh, something that I've really liked a lot lately. He's talking about the three fundamental attitudes which arise and which are the foundations of our practice of awakening. And he says the first one is renunciation, and that's the one I'm going to talk about for a moment now. The second is compassion. The third he calls pure perception or that accurate recognition. Yata Bhutta in Pali, I'm saying that now. But renunciation, as he's describing it, he's not talking about the renunciation of not eating at night or not wearing jewelry or sleeping on the floor, that kind of thing. He said the foundation, renunciation, the root of all stages of the path, implies the strong wish to free oneself from the seemingly unending sufferings of samsara. Samsara being the seemingly endless cycle of conditioned existence. 
this wanting and getting or wanting and not getting and either way leaning into the next moment leaning into the next thing pushing away from that wanting getting wanting getting with this renunciation of this comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification approval profit and status just read it again. It's not, and this isn't a should or an idea because that doesn't work. It just makes us feel worse about ourselves. But this, this sense, just a moment, and we'll have it for moments and then we get hooked in again, but a moment of heartfelt weariness or disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. That's samsara. And when we don't have that right view of just trusting awareness, to look at, to watch how this cycle is playing out, then we just kind of sucked back into it again. So with this right view of just the process of awareness, moving from content to process, you don't have to stop that cycle, but we see it. Without awareness, you know, we don't really quite notice that's what's happening. Awareness can change the whole thing. You know, we think, okay, this time it didn't do it, but the next time it will, right? This time I didn't get it, but the next time, or this time I did get it, but now it could just be a little bit better. Just a little bit better. You bring that to the the formal meditation too, right? No matter how good a retreat you've ever had, don't you hope this one's a little bit better? There's a Tibetan uh, definition of samsara as... um, the urge to correct. So just notice that you're doing walking meditation, you think, but I could feel it just a little bit clearer if I tried a little bit harder. That's the cycle of samsara. How does sati, how does mindfulness shift that? It's not like you come in with a hammer and go, this is bad, I'm going to stop it right now. I mean, I've tried that. Have you tried that? I am now going to give up clinging. I'm going to stop wanting things because it doesn't work, right? That doesn't work. We try it and then we get aversive because we couldn't stop wanting. And I understand very clearly, I talk about it all the day long, I know that wanting doesn't work. So what's the matter with me? You know, so then you're in aversion. And you don't, both of it is all about me, me, me. Awareness is like, oh, wanting is like this. It's a movement from the object to the process. So I'll tell you a simple little story where that happened years ago, many years ago, on my first three-month retreat. Um, This was bad, so don't do it. I had a car, and it was way, it was like two months in, in a bleak November in Massachusetts. And I just, just got this, what I thought was a yen for chocolate chip cookies. I can say it's only the first day of the retreat. You can't be too far along in these things yet. And it got bad. I mean, it got really bad. I had to have chocolate chip cookies. Just so much wanting, you know. So I got in my car and I went into Barry. And luckily, there's not much else you can do in Barry. And bought a bag of cookies and brought them back to my room and sat there. And I thought I was being mindful, you know, chewing, chewing, swallowing, swallowing, chewing, chewing, swallowing. swallowing. I went through two thirds of that bag. It was a big bag too. Chewing, chewing, and I'm, I'm not. That's not something I normally do, just to say. that I, Two cookies is usually enough. A whole bag, something else is going on. But 
I didn't quite recognize it for a while. Chewing, chewing, swallowing, swallowing. And suddenly, you know, awareness clicked in and go, oh. It's like I saw what was really happening, which was wanting. I said, oh, the cookies, there's this, this, there's this pain, this yearning. It was kind of like here. But the cookies were like dropping past it into my stomach. <laughs> they weren't really, really touching the yearning at all. It's like, oh, that's wanting. That's what wanting's like. So to me, that's like just a little, you know, if we don't stop and look, we just keep on eating the cookies, we get to the end and go, well, I guess it wasn't chocolate chip, I guess it was oatmeal I needed, you know, or I guess it was, I, you know, we just, we don't get, that's some sorrow, what the heck's going on? Some are going, oh, oh, awareness, wanting feels like this. And that's the difference. In our samsara, wanting, yearning, loneliness, aversion, it doesn't feel too good, does it? And our whole ethos, everything doesn't feel good, something's wrong, make it better. You want something, then get it, and then you'll feel better because the wanting goes away. We say, just hang out with wanting feels like this. Like, huh? Huh? Go to talk to someone in the street and say, just hang out with wanting feels like this instead of going and trying to get a better job. You just hang out with it. It's like, I don't think so. But try it. That's the shift to awareness. We don't have to respond. In fact, with wisdom, with clear seeing, there's not the urge to respond. Oh, that's just wanting. Not to do anything about it. Doing things about it just keeps it going. Oh, that's just wanting. And awareness of wanting is just that. You're taking refuge in the awareness again. It really can stop being a problem in that moment. I mean, I've done this a million times. It'll come up again. So what? We're not saying it should stop. We're just saying, let's see what's really going on. Oh, wanting feels like this. The habit of mind is move away from it. Just stay with it. You're back in awareness and there's peace. There really is peace. Even with wanting, it's just some sensations. It's just some energy in the mind. It's also just awareness and compassion when you bring full attention to it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to fix it. So with steady sati, with steady mindfulness, the interest, bec- interest becomes on the process, not on the what, not on how to fix it. It changes everything. Steady, 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 the reason we have this structure is because we have to just keep remembering. The habits of getting lost and distracted again are so strong. That's just how it is. But the more, the more we practice, the more steady we are with it. The habit of awareness, of recognizing awareness, of trusting awareness, of really, for me, it's like really loving it, gets stronger and stronger. And it's, I call it a shift of refuge. You know, our refuge, what we grew up with, what I grew up with, refuge is, you know, go after pleasant, get rid of what's unpleasant, do whatever we can to bolster our good sense of self. And that can be helping other people, that can be doing anything. But at the core of it's the me, me, me. The shift of refuge to just appreciating awareness rather than evaluating it by what's happening. You know, it's so much easier. It's so inclusive because there's nothing in our mind, in our heart, in our experience with other people in life that needs to be shut out of that. There's no kind of barrier differentiation that needs to be made. There's no judgment. My awareness is better than your awareness. I mean, who owns awareness? Nobody. 
My awareness is better because I'm aware of really subtle tingling sensations in my finger and you're only aware of aversion. So my awareness is so much better. Yeah. Oh, I think that's awareness of meing. But awareness is untouched. It doesn't care. Or as someone else said, it's not that it doesn't care. It cares, but equally for everything. Take your pick. And so our practice here is really about just cultivating the shift of refuge just in one moment and then in this moment and then in this moment. I think that's all I want to say. So thank you for your attention. And we just like to sit quietly for a moment at the end of the talk. I'll remember. So at this next last sitting, we'll have some chanting together, uh, the Karaniya Sutta, right? Yeah, learning the Karaniya Sutta, the Metta Sutta in the Pali. So please come, if you possibly can drag your body here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.